Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. So bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And we're back with episode three of The Casual Historians. Uh, what are we talking about today, Kira? We are talking about, from a larger scope, we're talking about the French Revolution, but um, definitely going to be focusing in a lot on the Reign of Terror. Oh, the Reign of Terror. And Kira, you sound a little bit sick. What's oh, going on? Oh, God. <laughs> we, I, th- I didn't realize we were talking about it. <laughs> What's going on? Is it allergies or, or uh, I, I mean, God only knows. All I know is I can breathe out of like one nostril at a time. <laughs> You're just forever sick. Yeah, falling apart over here. <laughs> so how's the week going? Uh, it's going pretty well. Um, what day is it? Tuesday? Um, it is Tuesday, yes. Yeah, I mean, again, just like losing track of time always. But what year is it? I don't even know what year it is. 2023. Well, and that brings up, I don't know if we want to be talking about this, but a great TV show called Timeless that I finally, after five years, watched the finale. Really? And it was funny because it's all about time travel, right? And the people from the future were from 2023. Oh, wow. That's yeah. interesting. So just kind of funny to watch it in 2023 because really? it's not the future anymore. No, it is It is the present. It is the present. It is the present. <laughs> um, before we get into it, I do have my This Day in History calendar. So oh. let's, let's read... Let's read through this one. Okay, what's today's date? January 24th? Yes. Tuesday, January 24th. In 1956, Emmett Till's murderers publicly confess. Oh, wow. I didn't realize they... Wait, in what year again? 1956. Did they go to... I don't... I never thought that Till's murderers went to jail, though. I don't know if they did. Let's read through it. On January 24th, 1956, Look Magazine published the confessions of J.W. Millam and Roy Bryant, two white men from Mississippi, who were acquitted in the 1955 kidnapping and murder of Emmett Lewis Till, an African-American teenager from Chicago. In the Look article, titled The Shocking Story of Approved Killing in Mississippi, the men detailed how they beat Till with a gun, shot him, and threw his body in the Tallahatchie River with a heavy cotton gin fan attached with barbed wire to his neck to weigh him down. On September 19th, the kidnapping and murder trial of Brian Millen began in Sumner, Mississippi. Five days later, on September September 23rd, the all-white, all-male jury acquitted the two men of murder after deliberate, deliberating for a little over an hour. Jeez. Jury claimed it would have reached its decision even more quickly, despite overwhelming evidence that the defendants were guilty had it not taken a soda break. Wait, what? 
<laughs> the acquittal caused international outrage and helped spark the American Civil Rights move- Movement. The two killers were paid a reported $4,000 for their participation in the Look article. That's wild. So essentially, in the end, they get off and also they got paid money. Yeah, they made out like bandits, apparently. That's Jesus. Terrifying. I'm sure there were a lot of crimes like that, though, back in the day. And honestly, still probably today. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's an episode in itself. Right. (laughs) All right. Well, enough about this day in history. Let's get to the topic at hand here. Let's set the stage for the French Revolution and then zero in on the reign of terror. So you can set the stage. How about that? Yeah, that sounds good. So what you need to know about France in the late 1700s, or honestly, how France had been running up until that point, was there was this kind of social hierarchy where there were three estates. Um, And the three estates were the clergy, the nobility, and the commoners. Um, The clergy, essentially, the king claimed that his authority was derived from a divine right to rule. And obviously, who's going to be able to substantiate that? It would be the clergy. Um, So ultimately, the church and the crown are very closely linked. Um, And also all functions of the government at this point, because you have to think, so France at this time is an absolute monarchy. So the king has a lot of influence and a lot of decision-making power, which is different to, I think, a lot of monarchies that we think of today, kind of like the British monarchy, which is more of a constitutional (laughs) monarchy. And they're more just figureheads. They're just figureheads, right? Yeah. And so at this time, almost the entirety of France's educational system was controlled by the church. Um, And then it also had a monopoly on poor relief and hospital provision. So, I mean, a wild amount, like a wild scope of influence when you think about that. So they're managing the education of the country, medical care, essentially, and then also taking care of an ever-growing population of impoverished people. Um, It's a consistent theme. The church just controls everything. Yeah, right, where... In a lot of Europe and also even in the U.S. for a long time, that was the case. Just like the world, like the real estate owned by the Catholic Church right now. Have you ever read into that? Not. I mean, I know that they're super rich in terms of kind of just all their assets, you know. I mean, and again, to go back to the British royal family, that's kind of them too, where they're one of the richest families in the world, but largely just because of all of the assets that they still have, where technically you would never sell it. But you still have it, and that's what uh, come what is ultimately your accumulated wealth. So that is the first estate. That's the clergy, and then we have the nobility. And what the nobility, some of the benefits that they get is they're exempt from most taxes. Also, being exempt from taxes is kind of I think pretty familiar even now, where kind of the no- nobility or super rich people being exempt from taxes or being able to get away with not being taxed. Um, so there's definitely going to be finding some the loopholes, finding the loopholes, very good article that I could go into about, about how there's like a whole industry <laughs> of people that help ultra rich people get out of taxes. Um, this loophole is the blood tax though. Oh, wait, can you elaborate a little bit more on this loophole? Well, the, the nobility. So basically the, the justification for this immunity was that the nobles ancestors, had risked their lives to defend the kingdom, paying what was called the blood tax. 
and therefore we're not expected to contribute money as well. So that's that's that. Meanwhile, I'm sure that there were plenty of people that defended the country and didn't end up getting to be nobility, but I digress. Yeah. Um, they were expected to pay poll taxes, though, or what's called the 20th. Basically required every French subject outside of the clergyman to pay 5% of all net earnings. Uh, so that they were exempt from most taxes, not that one. I'd take that, though. I would take that. Like, exactly. Tax? Come on. I feel like if you get away with not paying most taxes you're like ah five percent of my net earnings and i'm sure by the fact that they were the nobility they had a lot of land and again assets where five percent probably doesn't bother them yeah um and then we get to the biggest group especially by the time that we get to the french revolution um the commoners that make about make up about two million people by 1789 which is when the french revolution starts um and what's interesting to note about this class or this estate is it's incredibly diverse, which makes sense. If you have two million people, they're not all going to be the same. And one of the main subgroups, and this will be a word that I feel like is relatively familiar, um, is kind of the upper and middle classes of this estate known as the bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie. Um, the bourgeoisie. I which, actually, I have a friend whose middle name is bourgeois. Oddly enough, and he actually may actually listen to this podcast. Shout wink, out, wink, shout wink, out. nudge, nudge. <laughs> um, and then the second subgroup is really more the working class and the unemployed. Um, and what were they called? Oh, you want to pronounce it? I, I can certainly try, and then you'll have to correct me. San culottes. <clears throat> San culottes. Okay, I was I was relatively it close, means, but I pronounced yeah. the s at the end of culotte. <laughs> Yeah, you don't pronounce the S's. Damn. It means uh, without breeches. So basically, the rich people wore like knee breeches, and sanculot means without breeches. So it's kind of like referring to the commoners. Pretty interesting. I wonder, now it makes me wonder though, what did they wear? Nothing. They were <laughs> ass naked. They couldn't afford sure, clothes. Sure. Uh, I mean, honestly, I'm sure that that was, I mean, in terms of like shoes or something, I'm sure that they, there were certain articles of clothing that they did not have. So that's not entirely out of. They just didn't have the, the classy breeches, you know? Yeah. It's like not everybody's walking around with Louis Vuitton. Exactly. Like there was no time or money for fashion. It was more just, you know, clothes on your back. Hmm. Um. But so back to this whole 2 million people number, that's more than double the amount that there had been half a century prior. Um, and to kind of think about the lifestyle of the nobility at this point, like they're riding high, like very much like 1% vibes, very much enjoying themselves. I mean, a lot of expendable income. Um, but you can start to see the cracks coming in around this time, especially just because when you start to see massive levels of inequality, people are bound to get angry. It's interesting because the bourgeoisie controlled a massive share of national wealth, mm -hmm. um, most of the industrial and commercial capital, and almost one, one fifth of all French private wealth. So again, when we talk about kind of like that anger where, you know, I'm sure that they were probably starting to think like, hey, we have significant financial influence, we are important, we matter, we should have kind of a seat at the table, but then to always just be boxed out because in a lot of ways, it's a privilege of birth. You know, nobility, the clergy, it's 
a privilege of birth or like a privilege of, I guess, you go, you decide to just be a clergyman, um, which is just that really narrows down your opportunities for significant amounts of influence. Hmm. And I'm sure that would be frustrating for someone who's been working hard, you know, and making a lot of money, and yet that money ultimately doesn't matter. It makes me think of kind of like that constant thing of old money versus new money. Mm -hmm. And it must be frustrating in any kind of society to just be like, sorry, we don't care no matter how hard you work or what you've done to build yourself up. We just don't care because you you weren't born a nobleman. Yeah. I mean, it's just luck, basically. It's literally <laughs> Winning luck. Winning the genetic lottery, kind of born into money. But um, during the reign of Louis the Sixteenth, who was ultimately was not quite the last French king, he was the last before the revolution, and the end of his reign was the end of nine hundred and forty-eight years of absolute monarchy, which I just think is crazy. So almost a thousand years, the French royal family had had absolute control. Wow. Like just kind of like wrap up at least like that section of the background because we're going to go into a lot more of like the social structure of the general West. Mm. Um, the first and second estates, the clergy and the nobility enjoy a lot more privileges than the third, despite the third making up more than 90% of the population. Um, and then even within the third estate, there's a significant amount of diversity and also this growing middle to upper class mm. that in a lot of ways has a, some barriers to entry for influence that not to like totally give everything away, but they're going to want to break those down. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was like sort of like the, the perfect storm for revolution in France based on numerous different factors like economic conditions, social structures, um, things like that. But really, yeah. So the social structure of the West Primarily like the main cause of the revolution. So this was at a time where the feudal system was really starting to starting to break down a little bit. And if you're not familiar with the feudal system, really what it was was the nobility would hold lands from the crown in exchange for military service. And vassals um, were in turn tenants of the nobles, while the peasants were obliged to live on their lord's land, give them homage, labor, and a share of produce notionally in exchange for military protection. So that was just like the system of the world. <laughs> Um, which sounds pretty terrible. Um, well, right, because um, part of the feudal system, there were there was still serfdom at this point in a lot of European nations. Um, fun fact, I think Catherine the Great, or it was either her or her son, got rid of serfdom in Russia. But that's also around this same time period, like mid to late 1700s. So serfdom is kind of like the next closest thing to slavery, right? Yeah. Where kind of crazy to think that that was still going on yeah definitely it's crazy um but so the increasingly numerous prosperous elite of wealthy commoners also known as the bourgeoisie that we mentioned um, they were growing and they aspired to political power in these countries where it did not already possess it um, and as well as that the peasants so many of whom owned land, they had attained an improved standard of living and education, and they really wanted to rid or get rid of the last vestiges of feudalism um, so they could be landowners and be free to increase their own holdings and increase their, increase their own quality of life. So the peasants were chirping a little bit. They were talking, they were on the Twitter sphere. They were talking about how un, unfair everything is. Um, 
but you can see just like the the third estate within France is growing, and when it grows to such a massive amount, they can just easily overthrow the wealthy elites. Well, especially um, when you start seeing that they're getting kind of these resources where we talk about like more education, exactly. improved standard Talking of living, um, reduced mortality rates, all these things where there's in a way like they're starting to break out of this mold. And by the way, I think it's kind of funny to say wealthy commoners because it just sounds like such a contradiction. But even for the peasants, right, the where class, right? you start to get a taste of what 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 we would consider kind of just like general rights at this point where, well, of course you would have this, but imagine just living a life where that is not guaranteed and in a lot of ways seems like a nicety mm-hmm. and you start to get those and then you think, okay, well, what's next? Yeah. And, you know, wanting to just in general have more control over your own destiny. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in France, like the the standards of living, they were drastically getting better mortality rates amongst adults were reducing. Um, so this together with other factors really led to an increase in the population of Europe in general, unprecedented for several centuries. So it doubled between 1715 and 1800. Uh, but for France, um, with uh, which with 26 million inhabitants in 1789 was the most populated country of Europe. So this problem was the most acute. So this larger population created a greater demand for food and consumer goods. And then there was also a discovery of new gold mines in Brazil at this time. And it led to a general rise in prices throughout the West from about 1730. Um, So it was really indicating a prosperous economic situation. From about 1770, this trend really slackened and economic crises provoked alarm and even revolt. Um, they, they just be, It became frequent. So really arguments for social reform just began to become more and more in the conversation. Um, and this brings us to kind of the topic around the Enlightenment. And really central to the Enlightenment theory was basically the thought um, that, we, that the use and celebration of reason so the power by which humans understand the universe and improve their own condition seems like a very simple concept. But at the time, like we mentioned with the feudal system and how unequal, unequal things were mm-hmm. and the inequality, like this seemingly basic, simple concept was just not a thought as much. They were like, hey, maybe we should just, you know, try to advance humans as a whole and people we should improve each other's conditions and if you're trying to think of any kind of authors from this time some pretty big names to keep in mind that were part of the enlightenment movement were mary wollstonecraft and voltaire um they have some pretty interesting writings because like you said joe it's such a simple concept to us now but at that time the idea that in a lot of ways it was like a very intellectual topic Right. Where it just seems so basically, like, how could we possibly write books about this? Mm. Um, but they really get into it. And I'm sure to speak to the name of the movement, it was very enlightening for a lot of people. Yeah. So it's like all these factors are really just like created a perfect storm. But it's it's uncertain whether revolution would have come without the added presence of political crisis. So faced with the heavy expenditure that the wars of the 18th century entailed, the rulers of Europe sought to raise money by not only um, taxing the nobles and the clergy. So this is one of the main causes actually in America 
if you think of the American Revolution, mm-hmm. it's taxation. Well, and when we talk about kind of the financial strains that were happening in France, um, some of it was caused by their assistance of the American revolutionaries. Um, so I just I, I think that's kind of ironic where they were they assisted America during their own revolution and then only a few years later, less than a decade later, they face a revolution of their own. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the TLDR, really, the causes of the French Revolution, number one, the bourgeoisie resented its exclusion from political power and positions of honor. So they were starting to get more powerful. They were starting to get annoyed with their just lack of um, just political power and, and being in positions. Uh, two, the peasants were acutely aware of their situation and were less and less willing to support uh, the feudal the feudal system. So peasants were starting to get really pissed off, and there was a lot of them. That coupled with the bourgeoisie, of course, and then the philosophies, the movements of the Enlightenment, they just were read more widely in France. And so it, all it takes is an idea and a massive amount of people to spread, um, and things can spread pretty quickly. Uh, four, the French participation in the American Revolution had driven the government to the brink of bankruptcy. So you see these social issues, you see movements, and then you see money, of course. Um, and when times get tough economically, things happen. Where in a way, all you need is that one trigger mm-hmm. where everything else is in place. You just need the trigger that ultimately, like the straw that breaks the Campbell's back or something. Yeah. And then five, France was the most populous country in Europe. And then crop failures in much of the country in 1788, coming on top of a long period of economic difficulties, compounded existing restlessness. Um, And then six, the final main cause, the French monarchy, no longer seen as divinely ordained, was unable to adapt to the political and societal pressures that were being exerted on it. So really, they were just getting out of style. Monarchy was not... They weren't adapting quickly. They weren't reacting to things. And people were getting really, really fed up with it. So the next aspect, the aristocratic revolt, um, unless you have anything else to mention on the causes. No, I think that's, I think we're good to move on. All right, cool. So the aristocratic revolt, 1787 to 89. Um, so really what happened here, the controller of general the controller general of finances, Charles Alexander de Cologne, arranged the summoning of an assembly of notables. So this includes prelates, great noblemen, few representatives from the bourgeoisie. And this was in 1787. And really it was to propose reforms designed to eliminate the budget deficit. And really what they were aiming to do was eliminate this deficit by increasing the taxation of the privileged classes. How do you think that went over? Not well. <laughs> well, and I'm trying to think, like, when they call it privileged classes, they just meant still the commoners, but maybe just the rich commoners. Yeah. Um, so the efforts made by Cologne's successors to enforce the fiscal reforms in spite of resistance by the privileged classes led to the so-called revolts of the aristocratic bodies. Notably of that was the parliaments, which was the most important courts of justice, Um and their powers were curtailed by the Edict of May 1788. So there was unrest among the populace in Paris, Grenoble, Dijon, Toulouse, Pau, and Rennes. Louis XVI, he had to yield, and he reappointed reform-minded Jacques Necker as the finance minister and promised to convene the Estates General. And really what the Estates General was is a representation of the three 
estates, so the clergy, the uh, the noblemen, right? Nobility. Yes, sorry. the nobility. Um, and then, of course, the the, the third estate. Um, and he also granted freedom of the press, and then France was flooded with pamphlets addressing the reconstruction of the state. So basically, they had elections. They elected 600 deputies for the third estate, 300 for the nobility, and 300 for the clergy. It makes me wonder with a lot of these decisions where essentially he only made these decisions because he was between a rock and a hard place. And I just wonder if these kinds of decisions, which again, feel like rights to us now, like when we talk about freedom of the press, France ultimately does this in 1788. But why they didn't do it sooner, where potentially like you shouldn't be waiting for a whole population of people to be angry about something. You should be kind of seeing the writing on the wall and trying to nip it in the bud early, earlier, because I just wonder, like, had these people not been so angry for so long and feeling like their leaders are only giving it to them out of desperation would they have potentially left it all alone? It wouldn't have resulted in a revolution. Yeah, it's a good thought. Freedom of the press can be dangerous amongst, especially when you're in power like that, because we all know it's kind of BS. So if all the the masses all get on the same wavelength of something, a, rev- a revolution happens. So Well, and, and that's a thing where I feel like freedom of the press and like freedom of speech in general ultimately results in accountability for mm-hmm. those in power. Exactly. And yeah. I'm sure they didn't want to be held accountable. Yeah, exactly. But then like, again, we got a good thing going. Yeah, right. Where as long as, you know, because also the other thing about freedom of press when you're saying it's kind of like dissemination of information, where if people in all these cities and towns across France can get on the same wave, wavelength because they have the same amount of information. Whether, you know, and I'm sure because we get into it a little bit where I'm sure whatever we call quote unquote the truth can get twisted sometimes or just like the way it's being presented or shaped. Mm-hmm. But um, if everyone can get on the same page about something because the information is being given to them, it's a dangerous thing, but it can also be a positive if you have effective leadership, which clearly they did not. And I'm also sure that the monarchy, because they had been so used to being like, oh, we can just coast, guys. We we don't have to do anything. We've got everybody in our pocket. You know, we don't have to we just don't have to worry about it. And I'm sure that that breeds ineffective leadership because you get into this place where you're so spoiled because you've never had to do anything. 948 mm. years of absolute monarchy. You know, no one's ever questioned you before. Or if they have, it's been very brief. And I'm sure that, that I'm sure there's probably some people that thought that this was going to be the case again, where any kind of disagreements would just ultimately die out. Yeah. They must have been shocked when revolution happened. Yes. <laughs> shook. They would have they must have Literally been shook. The SpongeBob shook meme. <laughs> um Okay, in 1789, um, the Estates General met at Versailles on May 5th, 1789, of course. They were immediately divided over a fundamental issue, Kira, okay? Should they vote by head, giving the advantage to the third estate, or by estate, in which case the two privileged orders of the realm might outvote the third? Which I want to understand how that's even possible, where I get it, like you're super privileged, but when you make up only 10% of the population, 
I, I, I call cap on that where I just feel like the rules, I need to see the rules to this board game because that just sounds false. I don't think there are rules. Yeah. Well, any rules that were made up, they, they were literally changed. made up by the privileged classes, <laughs> which the again, people. the privileged classes in my mind are the first and second estate, the clergy <laughs> and the nobility. I don't understand why they were calling the commoners, quote unquote, privileged classes. It doesn't make sense. Make it make sense. You can't. No, you can't. Um, so the bitter struggle over this legal issue finally drove the deputies of the third estate to declare themselves the National Assembly. So they threatened to proceed, if necessary, without the other two orders. And then when royal officials locked the deputies out of their regular meeting hall on June 20th, they occupied the king's indoor tennis court. Must be nice. I also, just they had tennis courts back then, let alone indoor ones. Like, that's fantastic. I would love that. You would love to be Louis the Sixteenth. Oh yeah, I'm descended from him. Really? No. Oh. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. Who knows? Maybe it's possible. Let I me mean, in. a lot of them ended up dead, so probably not. Yeah, but probably not. Rest in peace. R.I.P. in peace. Um. So they occupied the king's indoor tennis court and swore an oath not to disperse until they had given France a new constitution. So the king gave in and urged the nobles and the remaining clergy to join the assembly, which took the official title of the National Constituent Assembly. Rumors of an aristocratic conspiracy by the king and the privileged to overthrow the third estate led to the great fear of 1789. The gathering troops around Paris and the dismissal of Necker provoked insurrection in the capital. Sound familiar? Like I said, I feel like there's a lot of familiar themes. Are we headed towards revolution? Uh, let's not talk about it. <laughs> On July 14th, 1789, the Parisian crowd seized the Bastille, a symbol of royal tyranny. Again, the king had to yield. This we man, keep yelling. He's a coward. I don't know, right? I'm coward. like, at this point, he still has a military, which I'm not, I'm not, you know, not suggesting turn on your own people, but I don't know what he was doing. Again, could have just been making these to, where why do they have to force your hand every time dude like again writings on the wall you just uh, try to make it seem like it was your idea you know where i feel like if he had just been like rather than be like oh god you forced me fine i'll do it you should have been you, he should have been like you know guys i don't know it would be a great idea i should give you guys some civil rights what do you think <laughs> i just feel like that might have might have uh, helped helped his cause a little bit more maybe Probably yeah, not. Probably, probably not. not. Yeah. But you know, I'm trying to. I'm trying to think positively here. Yeah, Bastille, good band, Pompeii by Bastille, great song. But that's where that comes from. If you've ever heard Bastille, it comes from this event right here. Um, the great fear of July led the peasants to rise against their lords. The nobles and the bourgeoisie now took fright. So the peasants are rising up, mm-hmm. rising up, straight to the top. Um, the National Constituent Assembly could see only one way to check the peasants. On the night of August 4th, 1789, it decreed the abolition of the feudal regime and of the tith, which was the tax. Right? Can I also just say, they're basically just giving them everything where I feel like this would embolden the third estate because they'd be like, oh, they they say yes to us if we even just push a little bit. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it seems like a pretty easy downfall of this government because there's like, okay, fine, we'll give you what you want after maybe two days. Yeah. Um, 
Then on August 26th, it introduced a declaration of the rights of man and of the citizen, proclaiming, proclaiming liberty, equality, the invi inviolability of property, and the right to resist oppression. The National Assembly followed the court and continued to work on the new constitution in Pelly, <laughs> Paris. Um, and then the, the French population participated actively in the new political culture created by the revolution. Dozens of uncensored newspapers kept citizens abreast of events and political clubs allowed them to voice their opinions. So basically people are able to say what was on their mind a little bit more. Finally. I mean, finally. Uh, I'm all for it. Not all for the reign of terror, what about but I'm nowadays? all for this part. What about nowadays with social media? Do you think we should have everybody's opinion on everything ever, all the time, in your face, nonstop? I mean, all the time. well, but I think the point is- All the time? Give me a second. I, I, I think the point is, it doesn't matter what I think. I think ultimately people have that right. It doesn't mean I have to absorb all of that, where- Say what you want, like wherever you want. I kind of don't care, but also don't expect me to listen to you or agree with you. And yeah. that's my right too, right? Where and, and I think and I think that's the important piece of it where people are allowed to express yeah. their opinions, but also people have the right to not agree with those opinions. Yeah. No, I just think it's insanely unhealthy to have everybody's take on everything all the time. Every, every day, all the time. <laughs> oh, definitely. I mean. It's like the Bo Burnham thing. <laughs> I, again, I, I'm in that sense, I'd just be like. Sensory overload. I highly recommend that people try to minimize their amount of social media exposure because I agree with you. It's, it's just upsetting. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm up in sure, the trenches, I mean, in the mud of Twitter, and you just see like the inbreds in this country <laughs> and, and their thoughts and opinions on things. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm sure it's like bad for everybody's mental and emotional health to just be absorbing all that all the time mm. so yeah the but again the it's their right to provide it yeah well yeah. Yeah. well i don't I know if everybody should have the right to vote in this country <laughs> <laughs> i'm like well, you'll you'll have to take it up with uh the government yeah. with the constitution you're gonna have Sleepy to take joe. that up take it up with joe <laughs> take yeah joe go take it up with joe <laughs> All right, the new regime. You want to take over with this one? Yeah, totally. So the National Constituent Assembly completed the abolition of feudalism. Amazing. Oh, hell yeah. Suppressed the old quote-unquote orders. So like the the third, first, second, third estates, those are gone at least in terms of government. They're gone. I'm sure there's still a lot of kind of your mental place on that still stands. But established civil equality among men. Notice that it doesn't say women. Have to just throw it in there. There's a lot about this story where there's not really a lot of women involved. This was progressive at the time, Kira. Okay. <sighs> I know. Okay. Carrying on. Count your blessings, okay? Yeah. Fine. <laughs> we'll definitely have an episode a little bit about like, you know, women's right to vote and stuff. We have to get some feminism up in here. Some women's suffrage. Yeah. We need to get some women's suffrage up here. Do you support... The abolition of women's suffrage. Have you ever seen that video? I think you've shown it to me. Yeah, and I'm just like, <laughs> because, I do. And then because everyone thinks, oh, it's suffering. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I support the abolition the, of women's suffering. It's an suffrage interesting does term. Not mean that. Suffrage. Like, why does it sound like suffering? Like, who? Why, I think there's a lot of vote? things about the English language that are weird, though. Don't you think? Well, yeah, the language is very inconsistent. Yeah. 
Um, but anyways, established civil equality among men, at least in metropolitan France, um, since slavery was retained in the colonies. How progressive of them. <laughs> right? Where it's like, we're just going to, I mean, I, it's clear to me that what they were trying to do was let's just satisfy the angry people that could literally kill us right now or like are in our vicinity. But in the colonies where they're super far away, we don't need to worry about them right now, even if they're angry. Hmm. Um and then made more than half the adult male population eligible to vote. Nice. Yeah, I mean, the overall, <laughs> these are all some pretty good things. Obviously, some stuff left to be desired. But like you said, progressive for the time. How progressive of them? Uh, the decision to nationalize the lands of the Roman Catholic Church in France to pay off the public debt led to a widespread redistribution of property. So kind of like what we were talking about, where when you think about even now, how much property the Catholic Church still has, the idea that basically in France, they just decided, you know, we're going to make this public. Um, the bourgeoisie and the peasant landowners were definitely the chief beneficiaries, but some farm workers also were able to buy land. And then the land transfer was made through the sale of assignats, bonds that were issued by the National Constituent Assembly and guaranteed by the value of the church lands. Um, which, again, I feel like all of this is very progressive, very modern. And again, you got to wonder how things might have turned out had the original order just gotten with the times and done this themselves. Um, the administrative system of the... Ancien Regime. Ancien Regime, which is like the first, second, third states, was swept away by the National Constituent Assembly, which substituted a rational system based on the division of France into departments, districts, cantons, and communes administered by elected assemblies. <laughs> Very progressive, honestly. It's, it's starting to, it's like a time of transition in France where this is starting to look like what our modern societies look like exactly which it's so interesting to think about the enlightenment where i wonder if a lot of these ideas started to come out of that yeah um, like hey we should take care of humans exactly a bit more <laughs> or you know organize our country our cities in a more rational way a more modern way um representative of yeah. the people in it basically exactly exactly Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's the that's the perfect word. It's just like representing more than just a little bit more democracy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We're definitely headed in that direction. Um, so then the principles underlying the administration of justice were also radically changed, and the system was adapted to the new administrative divisions, and the judges were to be elected. Oh, nice. Good yeah, I think again another huge positive where. I'm sure the law, in terms of like all the privileges that we were talking about, the law was extremely unequal to commoners. Mm -hmm. um, and even just, I'm sure there were a lot of like inherent biases because of the way the system had been set up to towards commoners. And again, like when we talk about like this starts to look like a very modern society, I think the legal system, there's always room for improvement, but that's like a huge huge deal in the 1700s definitely right they also tried to create a monarch <laughs> monarchical <laughs> thank you that word i can read it, it i is cannot tough. say it the ch and then the c after it's like it's, Mon it's a monarchical 
monarchical, monarchical regime where the legislative and executive powers were shared between the king and an assembly. So this starts to sound like a constitutional monarchy where like when we say like Louis the 16th, last absolute monarch of France. And it didn't really work though because Louis the 16th was weak, which I feel like over the past like five or 10 minutes, we've established this just by a lot of the decisions that he made was weak and constantly changing his opinions where just could not make a decision to save his life, which... Yeah, he tried to flee the country. Yeah, when I say, like, to save his life, I mean, I feel like that's pretty fitting considering what happens next. But anyways. Foreshadow. Foreshadow. Um, That's a good segue into counter-revolution and war. Yes, let's, let's get into some violence. Oh, yeah. So really, the events in France gave new hope to the revolutionaries... Uh, who had been defeated a few years previously in the United Provinces, Belgium, Switzerland, um, all those who wanted change in in England, Ireland, the German states, the Austrian lands, or Italy, they looked upon the revolution uh, with sympathy. And really an interesting fact, so a number of French counter-revolutionaries, so the people against the revolution, so nobles, some bourgeoisie, they abandoned the struggle in their own country and they emigrated uh, as emigres. So many formed armed groups close to the northeastern frontier of France and sought help from the rulers of Europe. So people who just didn't like the change that the revolution was bringing, the progression of society, they dipped. They left France and were like, help. I mean, it's that like makes weird sense. Because you think like, I don't know, like the revolution was like the, the good guys. So you have like almost like just the old bad I mean, I guys think it's just- fleeing and looking for support from other countries. It based, it's all based on, you know, where you were coming from. Because also even just the way that we talk about it, like, oh, they're the good guys. It's because we don't come from a background where like we're not clergy people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're not the nobility. So like to us, and also we come from the US, right? Where yeah. like our whole history is based on this revolution. So we're very pro-revolutionaries. It should always be the greater good for the greater majority. And I feel like that's the case with these revolutions. It was just like 90% of the population was like, wait, we this everything sucks for us. Why is that? Oh. <laughs> I'm, I I'm not to... editing that out. <laughs> this is an edit-free episode. Oh, my God, no. We're keeping the ums. Keeping the ums, the yeah. likes, the it's too much work. It's too much know. work. It's more natural to just do this. Oh, um, God, okay. Kira just sneezed. Yeah, I just sneezed. I tried to get him to stop talking. So and, embarrassing. Uh, yeah. Oh, so God. So embarrassing. Natural bodily functions <laughs> when you're sick. I mean, they're just, how can you? Yeah. All right. Well. Um, carrying on. Carrying on. So by early 1792, both radicals eager to spread the principles of the revolution and the king, hopeful that war would either strengthen his authority or allow foreign armies to rescue him, support an aggressive policy. So France declared war against Austria on April 20th, 1792. Isn't that weird? They declared war to like spread the revolution that they just had. It, I don't understand but it this. It's more to like the like the climate of Europe at the time, right? Like it was all stuck in kind of that feudal monarchy, like not really progressive society. Um, so it's just interesting that you would start war to like ignite French nationalism 
and really just spread the idea of revolution. Like imagine if like the U.S. became a country and we're like, let's just go to war with Mexico now. But oh, they no. also just probably wasn't a thing at the time. It, they <laughs> they treat you know in a lot of ways. And again, when I was just talking about their thought processes, and when you're saying like they're so stuck in their ways in a lot of way, uh, stuck in their ways in a lot of ways, where. They really are kind of making decisions where it's like, do you think the commoners are really that dumb? You know, where, oh, let's start a war and they're all going to support France. But you guys started it. It's not like anybody attacked you. You started a war. Why would anyone be like, oh, my God, I'm so glad that they started a war. I want to really show them how much I love my country, you know, and I'll die for my country, but I won't become a nobleman because they seem to be really picky about who gets to be a nobleman. Well, oddly enough, they were right because volunteers poured in. Oh, damn. Well, (laughs) I take it back. (laughs) (laughs) That's just your opinion on it, though, right? That that is my I mean, I, I mean, I would not be signing up. I'd be like, well, this is dumb. Yeah, but. Another interesting thing, so like France's Austrian-born queen, Marie Antoinette, privately encouraged her brother, Holy Roman Emperor Leopold II, to invade France as a counter-revolutionary measure. Again, where they're just like, you know, if we have to, you know, sacrifice a couple bodies, like a couple hundred bodies for a war that's really a fake war because we're just trying to stop the revolution in France. I'm just like, who are these people? I hate them. Right? It's just like the... Illuminati, you know, like the old, like the 1700s Illuminati, where it's just like, so France's Austrian born queen, her brother is a Roly, or a Roly, <laughs> Holy Roman Emperor. It's like, what? It's kind of like with when we talk about like World War One, how like, oh, they're all brothers of like the different. Yeah, they're all related. It's just like, it's just this popularity club, you know? This club. Of, this very exclusive club that mm-hmm. nobody else is allowed to come into because you have to be born into it. The Kardashians, Marie Antoinette, Kardashian. Oh, God. <laughs> Honestly, I'm sure the Kardashians would be kind of like flattered to be used in the same sentence as Marie Antoinette, though. They probably don't know who it is. That's also a fair point. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> Did you see that dress that Kendall Jenner was wearing with a lion head on it? Oh, I thought that was Kylie. Oh, Ky- I don't know. But also... There was, I think she like wore it because then like another fashion brand (laughs) actually designed them. And I'm like, what is this? They both had it on. Imagine showing up and you show up with a dress with a lion head on it and someone has the exact same thing. You're like, are you kidding me? I mean, they're all ridiculous. Like that that, whole. That video made my blood boil. I was like, these people are such losers. (laughs) Like, let's all guess how much that dress costs too. (laughs) Yeah. Way too much. Um, All right. Back to counter-revolution. So in- September 1792, a new assembly met the National Convention. So the National Convention proclaimed the abolition of the monarchy and the establishment of the Republic. The Republic. The National Convention was divided between the Girondins, Girondins, who wanted to organize a bourgeois republic in France uh, and to spread the revolution over the whole of Europe, and the Montagnards, right? Am I pronouncing that right? Montagnards. I'm gonna, not going to be the person for <laughs> this. What about your French blood? I thought you said like it just came natural. Montagnards. Uh, also known as the Mountain Men, who with Maximilien Robespierre. Put a pin in that name. <laughs> Poop. <laughs> wanted to give the lower classes a greater share in political and economic power. So capitalizing on the working class. 
Doesn't that sound like a consistent theme? Yes. Adolf Hitler. Sorry, I've I've been watching Hunters, so I'm just I got Hitler on the mind. Unfortunately, we'll have more World War II stuff, I'm <laughs> sure, in the future. Um, so despite efforts made by the Girondins, Louis the Sixteenth was judged by the Convention, condemned to death for treason, and executed on January twenty first, seventeen ninety three. Marie Antoinette guillotined nine months later, and this was my favorite word. Regicide. Major vocabulary word. Yeah, it's a vocab. It's going to be on the test, everyone, on the quiz. (laughs) Regicide means the killing of a king. And oddly enough, after I learned that, I'm reading Game of Thrones. It popped up way too much. And I was like, wow, I know what regicide means now. Well, and also, unfortunately, you know, so we know that Louis XVI died, Marie Antoinette died, but also both of their children, both their living children died, I believe, in prison. R.I.P. Yeah. I mean, I I think there's definitely, you know, there's going to be, what we talk about kind of like Louis XVI just made a lot of mistakes, and that's not to necessarily say like, oh, he deserved to die, but I'm just saying like, again, writing on the wall, but like, there's definitely going to be some examples of people that the writing was not on the wall, especially mm-hmm. when we're talking about two kids. Um, so yeah, and we'll get into that, too, about kind of like there was some opposition to the amount of violence that occurred during the French Revolution. Yeah. So ultimately, you know, in the, in the spring of 1793, the war entered a third phase marked by new French defeats. Austria, Prussia and Great Britain formed a coalition later called the First Coalition to which most of the rulers of Europe adhered. France lost Belgium in the Rhine, Rhineland, and invading forces threatened Paris. These reverses, as those of 1792 had done, strengthened the extremists. So goodbye, Girondins. Ultimately, this war ended in 1797, but um, we won't get really too far into that. We kind of want to take a step back and talk about what happened during this time, which was the reign of terror and really the the two major political groups. So Kira, I'll let let you enlighten me on some of this. Sounds great. So what we've already touched on a little bit is there were two major political groups. So the Girondins, and we ultimately know their unfortunate fate, Um, but they were the more moderate of the two factions and drew their strength strength from, (laughs) I'm sorry, drew their strength from the provincial cities and the upper classes. And those ties to the upper classes and the monarchy would ultimately be a huge weakness, especially after the execution of Louis XVI on January 21st, 1793. Then the mountain men, or the Monta- that's just, just going to be your way of describing them, right? Where I'm like, give American me some version. English words, some English words. Um, do you speak American? Do that's you the speak American? American? Version. <laughs> See, that's so sad because I feel like I'm um I'm a lot more cultured than this. My 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 speech just won't match my brain, which you're is just, unfortunate. You're an English person. You're I'm an English person, but you know, Irish, Irishman. But you know what? That's no excuse, Joe. An Irishman. That's no excuse. Um, but anyways. And the mountain men were very much like radicals and largely composed of the Parisian bourgeoisie and the sans-culottes, militants initially drawn from the poorer classes of Paris and were led by the Jacobin Club, which when we talk about Illuminati, honestly, like I think of Illuminati just by the name Jacobin Club. It sounds like very fancy and kind of like a bunch of like rich white dudes. But anyways, the Jacobin Club of Paris um, and that club alone would become known for their radicalism and violence. Um, so the reign of terror lasted from about September 5th, 1793 
to July 1794. And even though it seems like it's a little bit disputed how many people exactly would be executed, um, the estimate is around 17,000 people would be officially executed, and then 10,000 would die in prison awaiting trial. A group of Parisian radicals petitioned the National Convention to place, quote, terror on the order of the day. <laughs> That's horrifying. Which, I mean, why? I just, I mean, this I'll never quite understand. There's but a lot of fear. A lot of fear. A lot of fear. And I'm sure, you know, there were a lot of stressors where, you know, even during this time with all the reform that had already occurred, uh, there was still, you know, widespread famine. There were still some economic difficulties for the country. Obviously, there were some wars going on. Um, where a lot of like what we talk about with the reign of terror and the French Revolution is very like focused on Paris, but there were still some skirmishes going on in other regions of the country. Hmm. Um, but so anyway, seizing that mandate, the Committee of Public Safety in Paris responded with ruthless efficiency to real and perceived threats to its rule. So that's kind of an <laughs> interesting perceived threats. threats. <laughs> that's anything. Basically anything. Exactly. Like, uh, I think, and we see it more later where kind of, oh, we have political opponents. Well, that's a threat. Kill Let's them. kill them. <laughs> um, Goddamn right, brother. So the <laughs> Girondins, as we had briefly pointed out, would ultimately be victims of the reign of terror. Um, they initially led the government post-absolute monarchy, but with, as we were talking about, but with a faltering war against Austria, which again is like kind of funny because I, I don't quite get this where I thought this war was kind of planned out. But then again, I guess like then they kill the Holy Roman Emperor's sister. So maybe all bets were off with kind of like a play war. Mm. Um, but anyways, with a faltering war against Austria and failing to resolve economic issues that had been plaguing the country, such as food shortages, um, the government was super close to bankruptcy. Um, they were overthrown by a popular uprising and the mountain men seized <laughs> the advantage. Um, in 1793... Essentially, everything's falling apart all over the country. Um, France has descended into chaos with foreign armies at the borders. Because I'm sure there, there were a lot of kind of like vultures being like, oh, things are falling apart. How can ah. we take advantage? Um, rebellions in southern cities and a civil war in western France. So there's there's just a whole lot of mess going Laundry on. List. Oh, my God. And three leaders, three potential leaders emerge. So the first one, and I really tried to listen to how this is properly pronounced, where I could like definitely Americanize it, but I'm trying not to do that. Um, well, you speak American, so. <laughs> I speak American. Um, Georges Danton. How did I do? What do you think? I mean, that sounds, that one looks pretty easy, right? Well, Georges Danton. You're not supposed to tell them that it looks easy. <laughs> um, was a Jacobin leader. So when we were talking about the Jacobin Club, who had been a driving force in the fall of the Ancien Regime, the social hierarchy that originally had ruled for over mm -hmm. 900 years, um, but was ultimately seen as too moderate, which I, I, I still kind of wonder, like, how are you a Jacobin but then still seen as moderate. That just tells me that there are some like bad shit crazy people in that club. Um, I'm going to have to bleep that out. <laughs> oh, all right. Are we not swearing in this? Nah, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. I would just hate if your employer heard it. 
Oh, well, I'm just nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna, ain't nobody gonna hear that one. <laughs> um, and just like some background into these guys a little bit. So his early life, he was born in 1759 in northern central France to a lawyer, which common theme. There are a lot of lawyers that are like in this. Um, I didn't want to say like they clearly are kind of bloodthirsty, but I'm not saying all lawyers are, but these guys definitely were. Yeah, watch, um, watch your words. I know, right? Hi, Dad. <laughs> Hi, Dad. Uh, but anyways, born in 1759 in northern central France to a lawyer, and he would ultimately obtain his own law degree in 1784 and then would move to Paris and purchase his own practice in 1787. So like we said, pretty moderate um and he was against when i said earlier about like there were some people that were against the unfortunate levels of violence that occurred he was against the reign of terror and increased violence and even attempted to withdraw from public life where he was kind of like i'm peacing out like this isn't cool for me anymore but it's like shia labeouf i am not famous anymore yeah he was like i'm not (laughs) famous anymore um but in kind of this attempted exit, he did express some opinions. And, you know, expressing opinions sometimes can be dangerous, especially in this climate. And he was ultimately viewed as the leader of the moderate opposition to Maximilian Robespierre's tactics and leadership. And believe me, we'll get to him. Um, and he would be a victim of the reign of terror. And during his trial before his execution, he was quoted to cry, let me be led to death. I shall go to sleep in glory. Um, and I know, right? Where, like, he definitely just felt at the end, like, he would... It, it reminds me, it gives me a lot of, like, give me liberty or give me death kind of vibes where... I feel like he, that's the most overused thing when, like, someone's going to die. <laughs> I'll go to sleep in glory. Right? Where, like, he was definitely kind of like, I'm in the right. Which, yeah. I mean, he... I, I, I think... Granted, I, I, do, I don't know everything about this guy, but at least just the idea of being a little bit more moderate and being mm. like, hey, maybe we shouldn't kill tens of thousands of people. I'm kind of like, you know, <laughs> I'm kind of with that. Um, but so he would die in April 1794. Guillotined. Guillotined. Do you imagine getting guillotined? Oh, no. <laughs> the stories no. of like it like not Working. being a clean, yeah, clean cut. <laughs> well, and the sad thing is like the guillotine was considered like a really great um like innovation because beheadings before the guillotine yeah it was like were a by lot hand. worse <laughs> by yeah. hand, it was like hacking you know yeah like you were hoping that you got a super skilled swordsman <laughs> where it would only be like maybe like one or two hacks. Some valerian steel yeah right oh <laughs> so anyways then we get to jacques hebert who had the who had the support of the San Culotte and was the Culotte? <laughs> I, I probably sound like a total idiot. Like culotte? if a, if a French the person ever the at the end of your words, culotte? <laughs> like this. Um, if a French person ever listens to this, I just want to say I'm so sorry. Um, but anyway, so I'm he not had the, sorry. I I I I definitely am. I'm very sorry. And he was extremely anti-clergy. Um, who but, wouldn't be? And this left him with a reputation of being a radical. Um, his early life, he was born in 1757. So I was trying to imagine all these guys were like, how old are they? What's their background? What's their deal? Um, so they're all like in their like late 30s or into their 40s um, around the time of the revolution. So anyways, born in 1757 in Normandy, France to a bourgeoisie family. 
but would ultimately live in poverty for the decade leading up to the French Revolution when he moved to Paris. Um, no details on how that ended up happening, where, but like clearly he wasn't kind of like a Nepo baby where he was getting <laughs> taken care of by mom and dad. Like the Hanks. <laughs> yeah, not the Hanks. I mean, there's just so many Nepo babies, but I digress. Phil Collins' his daughter. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, my God. And speaking of horrible Americans, like, covering French stuff, the show Emily in Paris, so bad. Mm, I mean, I get it. It can be, like, kind of entertaining, but it's just I've bad. never even sniffed trying it. Uh, watching I watched it. the first season, and I was kind of like, ugh, this is horrible and cheesy, but not that bad. And then, I don't know, I just fell off of it. But anyways... Um, when the French Revolution started, he launched a career as a journalist. And basically, this guy was like, this is my moment. Perfect time. I am ready to launch my career. To start my blog. Yeah, this was what I was... Oh, my God. He's like a Perez Hilton or something. He's like, <laughs> I'm ready to talk Again, excuse my language. But, um, I mean, there were definitely, like, cartoons, too. Like, kind of made me think a little bit of that. But, um, anyways... We are we are um, going way off topic in a lot of different directions, it's fine. but um, he launched a career as a journalist focusing on political satires that specifically oh. targeted the clergy. Because public enemy number one for this guy is the clergy, I, and I soon, could have been right about the Charlie Hebdo thing if it was political satires, right? Well, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> um, and soon Louis the Sixteenth, his newspaper would become one of the most popular of the French Revolution. Um, Unfortunately, or fortunately, I have no idea. Like, depends on whether you like the guy or not. Um, he <laughs> would also die by guillotine in March 1794. Basically, the next guy we're going to talk original. about was really trying to get rid of his opponents. He was like, how can I get rid of as many of these dudes as possible? And so we get to who I consider like one of the most famous figures of the French Revolution, Maximilian Robespierre. And he was seen as kind of like a middle option. So on the left, you have Georges. On the right, you have Jacques. And in the middle, you have Maximilian. And he was actually incredibly aggressive in his campaign for leadership, attacking the authority of both sides of the government. He believed that the revolution had to continue under, quote, one single will. He gives me like major like dictatorship vibes, right? Um. (laughs) And to do this, he began arresting hundreds of thousands of people. <laughs> I mean, how did he even have the we'll like power there. to do that? But anyways, yeah, what, what did you say? We'll start there. Yeah, we'll start there. <laughs> so he began arresting hundreds of thousands of people. And on June 10th, 1794, the National Convention passed a law that suspended the right to a public trial mm-hmm. and legal assistance. Yeah. And the just law of 22 prairie all year. Like, just to jump ahead, this guy is also a lawyer, but he was like, yeah, I'm a lawyer, but, you know, right to a public trial, lame, legal (laughs) assistance, you don't need it. My entire job you don't need right now. (laughs) Yeah, we're just not going to do trials. We'll just kill everyone. For real. Well, because then it goes into juries were given two choices. And I'm sure you can probably guess what those two choices were, or at least one of them. Acquittal or death. And this made June an especially bloody month of the Reign of Terror. Especially bloody. Especially. Super snowy and bloody that month. Like, it was really bad already, but it was especially bad this month. There were an estimated 1,300 executions. And I'm just thinking, there are only 30 days in this month. I mean, that is just insane. Where how many guillotines did they have set up? Like, was it just like... Next. Next. <laughs> Must have been, right? 
like yeah. 1300 executions in 30 days <laughs> outrageous and it's all like manual you know this isn't 1930s yeah, 40s gas chamber execution this is like guillotine it's one by <laughs> one some someone's like whatever pulling the lever or something i'm sure you have to sharpen that blade every once in a while yeah it's like a pay-per-view I mean, event oh man so bad also why was so that a inhumane. thing like why was that like a pay-per-view event where people are like oh yeah let's go watch someone die today like oh usually my God. because it's like the person that is dying is like the opposite of the people's watching's like beliefs or whatever so they like yeah. cheer it on you yeah know? it's just the most primal instinct of Ugh. animals, basically. I'm just not down with Enemy. it, man. Ah, deaf. <laughs> or, you know, like they said, perceived threats were perceived enemy. Yeah, it's a witch. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Witches. Oh, that's another that's good episode. No. Just no, we could I, do the Salem witch trial. We should Actually, probably that's do the, the Salem witch trials. That's yeah. the next episode. Sold. But anyways, his early life, just to quickly touch on it, um, born in 1758 in northern France. He was, again... He was also a son of a lawyer. But after his mother's death, I found this interesting where it makes me wonder, like, let's get into, like, the psyche of Maximilian. Privileged son of a lawyer. But then after his mother's death, his father essentially abandons the family. And Maximilian, along with his brothers and sisters, were raised by his maternal grandparents. Um, He would ultimately receive a scholarship to the College of Louis-le-Grand in Paris, Mm. where he excelled in philosophy and law, but also, I don't know, he sounds kind of like a sociopath, which, like, doesn't mean he can't excel at that stuff, but I don't know. Um, Like, who is that Idaho murderer guy? Oh, the Idaho murderer? Yeah. Like, Ryan Coburger? Yeah, it just makes me think, like, is this kind of like Ryan Coburger vibes where, like, he Brian. might have been, like, good at... Brian, thank you. Like, he's good at school and stuff, but, like, secretly, like, it's, like, Was super he good at school, stuff. though? I don't know. I mean, he was, what, going he's for his doctorate or something? To be honest. Oh, he was, was literally learning how to, like, get away with crimes, and he just was terrible at it. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I guess, like, in the actual execution of it, I just wonder. I'm just saying, like, from a academic point of view, but... I don't know like, if he was. Not everybody who's good in school is also good, like, like in just real like, world at anything, you know? Yeah. Like, you can be, like, pretty not smart and still just get your degrees if you just do the assignments and you're average at everything. It's not like That's people true. are, like, they just are looking for graduation rates. <laughs> so. That's true. But it does, but then, okay, fine, but maybe bad comparison for modern times, but I wonder if that was also the case back in 1780s like France. A, yeah. Maybe a good, a good uh, comparison would be like Trump. Didn't he go to like oh, one of the top like schools? That. But like one of the Pennsylvania schools, right? Yeah, UPenn like Wharton School. I think. Yeah, it's like he may have excelled, <laughs> but like did he, or was he just kind of? Well, he's also a nepo baby. I'm just yeah, like exactly, he, he just exactly. has a rich That's father right. that gave him everything. But yeah. anyway, maybe similar vibes. Maybe similar vibes. <laughs> Um, where was I? But anyways, he excelled in philosophy and law and would ultimately become a lawyer and later a judge. Again, this guy is like, his whole career is about law, but then he's like, ah, you know, <laughs> two choices for the jury. You don't need legal representation. <laughs> what I just studied, throw it out the window. <laughs> um, but he had a repu- repu- reputation for representing the poor classes, which I found interesting because I was just trying to figure out, like, are these guys just kind of like trying to take advantage of a bad situation and just gain power, which I still think is the case. But then also, do they have a history of kind of supporting the third estate, the commoners, 
poorer people where, you know, at least one of them has like experience with poverty. The other one has represented the poor classes and he was vocal about his opposition to absolute monarchy. So this guy, again, like opportunity was ripe for these kinds of guys. You know, they've been waiting for this moment. Um, But Joe, I'm going to pass it off to you since I think you briefly mentioned this earlier, the law of 22 Perial. Well, I mean, that was just what you talked about. The suspended the suspect's right to public trial. Ah, yes. And legal assistance. assistance, Which just is a wild law to (laughs) where, again, a law to suspend legal assistance. Yeah. I don't know. But anyways, um, ultimately, so Robespierre, he was kind of main mastermind behind a lot of the arrests, a lot of the executions. The two guys that we talked about before him they were political rivals of his obviously got them out of the picture and but ultimately though Robespierre leadership lost its popularity not necessarily due to the violence like it seems like the people were totally cool with the violence um but because of the same issues that had started the French Revolution and issues that had kind of plagued all of the governments before his so a failing economy Rationing food, depreciating currency, um, price-fixing scheme on consumer goods proved unworkable. Um, Robespierre, having been branded a failed dictator, (laughs) because he definitely gave dictator vibes, um, by the right and moderate by the left. Which, again, how is is this guy viewed as, like, a moderate by some people? What is happening? Um... And, you know, he, he he wasn't able to kill all of his rivals. Sad face. <laughs> um, so <laughs> the reign of terror would die with him when he himself was executed. Um, tisk tisk. And that's kind of like where we end off. Yeah. R.I.P. Yeah, I mean, R.I.P. to a lot of people. <laughs> a lot of people. Basically everyone. Basically everyone. Yeah, I'm like, did anybody that we talked about, did anybody survive? I don't think anybody that we... Napoleon. Well, and he's another story to come in. I mean, again, like, basically, France is a... So I feel like we leave off where it's like, yeah, so, you know, France at this time is still kind of a dumpster fire. I wonder what could happen next. Napoleon. Napoleon. That's a good episode, eventually. Maybe I know. We'll circle I feel back. like every single episode, we come up with at least three more episodes. Yeah, definitely. Which, hey, isn't a bad thing. Not a bad thing. Not a bad thing. But anyway, we really hope you enjoyed listening to this one. This was definitely probably one of our bloodiest episodes. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> definitely, definitely one of our bloodiest. bloodiest. But like, I feel like we have to challenge ourselves now, Joe. We have to think of something, something else. Something even bloodier? Something even bloodier. What is bloodier than the reign of terror? I don't know, like Iwo Jima or something? Well, yeah, yeah, I, yeah I guess, probably I mean, something D-Day, like that. D-Day, Operation yeah. Overlord, as yeah. they call it. That's a potential. Yeah. But next episode... Salem witch trials. Salem witch trials, which you know, bad in and, and of itself. We'll actually have an interview with a witch herself. <laughs> I'm not a witch. Yeah, yeah, we'll end on that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Have a good day, everyone. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Bye.